I would invite you uh, to take a Bible, if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew for a few more weeks. Just have a few more weeks left in um, this year, and we'll be, we'll be in Advent before you know it. Crazy. Um, but we're in Matthew for just a few more weeks, and we are in chapter 20 this morning, the first 16 verses. If you're present and able, I'd invite you to stand with us in honor of the Lord's Word this morning. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After he agreed with the workers to pay them a denarian, which there's a footnote and down below it says, that's about a day's wage. He sent them into his vineyard. Then he went out around nine in the morning and saw others standing around the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And so they went. Again, around noon, and then at three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. Around five in the afternoon, he went and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you just standing around here doing nothing all day long? Because nobody has hired us, they replied. He responded, well, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the workers and give them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon came, each one received a day's wage, a denarian. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarian. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner Oh, these who were hired last worked one hour and they received the same pay as we did even though we had to work the whole day in the hot sun. But he replied to one of them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who, has hired, who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So um, 41 years ago, I learned a very important lesson, and that is that life is just not fair. It was my 13th birthday, and I'm glad my mother's here so I can get this off my chest. It was my 13th birthday, and I wanted one thing for my birthday. I wanted a clock radio. Now, I know that doesn't sound cool to the iPod generation, but I wanted a clock radio. I wanted a clock radio um, so that I could wake myself up in the morning, and I wanted the cool one with the digital numbers. But I wanted to be able to listen to um, the sweet sound of Dave Niehaus calling the Mariner games in the evening in my own room. And there was a stereo in the house, but but it was in the front room. My parents kind of hogged it. And I wanted to be able to listen to the classic rock of the late 70s and the great disco sounds as I got ready in the morning with my bell bottoms and puka shells and other things, right? So, So this is what I wanted. And my parents said I had to wait till I was 13. And so, sure enough, on my 13th birthday, they did what they had promised and covenanted to do. I received a clock radio. Now, I only have one sibling. I have a little sister who's four years younger than I am. 
And here's what happened. She was upset that I now had a clock radio. And she kind of whined about it. Until finally, my parents decided to upgrade their clock radio, and she didn't get a new one. I'll give them that. But they handed down their clock radio to her, and she was nine. Nine. I had to wait till I was 13. There's a teen in that. She's not even in the double digits yet. And she got her own clock radio. It's just not right. I'm still in two therapy sessions a week working through it. Um, But I learned 41 years ago, life is not fair. Actually, I learned something very different, but we'll come to that in a minute. And much more important than that. But the reason that seems so unjust, and still to this day seems so unjust, is because we are shaped largely by an economy of merit. If you're taking notes this morning, you should write that down. We are shaped by an economy of merit. And in that economy of of merit is this idea that life works best if there's a kind of fairness to it. And especially those of us in a capitalistic society, we should not like this parable at all. Because to live this way causes society to fall apart. We need a society, a a culture, an economy of merit that encourages people to work and to get out there and do something and to have a system that is fair so that when we do that work, we will earn what is rightfully ours. I need you to know, we as a church, as we call people to participate in ministry, we try really hard to have an economy of merit based on responsibilities and number of years of service and do you have some degrees? And so we do our best to make sure men and women, people with different responsibilities, that there is a fairness, a a merit to the ways that we shape our economic life as a church. Some of you, in fact, a lot of you in this room are employed in education and there is nowhere that plays the economy, economy of merit game more than a university or an education system. Having served there, I know this. You get a contract every year, and it is based on this. What degree do you have? How many years have you taught? Have you written some things? And the whole system that is based on everybody gets treated equally. And let me tell you, if somebody is perceived to be treated not equally, there will be a faculty meeting. (laughs) Because it's very important that there is this economy of merit. Now, that's not all bad, but there is a problem when the economy of merit gets mixed with what I have often uh, talked about with you as what Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, calls the myth of scarcity. So I know that I've talked about this with, with some of you before, but But I love this idea from Brueggemann that what we learn in the Exodus story is what he calls the myth of scarcity versus the liturgy of abundance. So again, what he sees there is that Pharaoh is the embodiment of not just empire, but of the myth of scarcity. That Pharaoh is convinced that life is a zero-sum game. If he has something, then someone else doesn't have it. But more importantly, if someone else has something, he doesn't have it. And so... He has to gather and store up and kind of become a hoarder because he has things. And, he, and if the Israelites don't have those things, it's clearly because they either didn't earn it or God's not on their side. 
And so you have this myth that there's not enough stuff, and so that causes you to constantly live in fear that somebody's going to take your stuff, and it constantly causes you to live in fear of the stranger who is desperate, and you know they're desperate, but the thing is, we live in a myth of scarcity that there's not enough for them, and I'm really sad that there's not enough for them, but they need to kind of figure that out because I have it, and I'm worried that I'm going to lose it. And so in an economy of merit mixed with a myth of scarcity... What we get is this kind of life where we're constantly worried and constantly worried about, are we getting enough attention? Are we getting enough goodness? Are we getting enough resource? Is anybody paying attention to me this morning? Like, is anybody paying attention? Now, we've been looking at this section of Matthew, and beginning at chapter 18, if you have your Bible still open, is, that, is the fourth block of teaching, major teaching in Matthew, and it begins this way. The disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the new creation? Who is the greatest in this kingdom that you are bringing? You are this Messiah bringing this kingdom, but what does it mean to be great there? And so for like three chapters, Jesus is trying to say to them, listen, I have to mess with your imaginations because you constantly think of being great in one way, but I'm trying to tell you, in this kingdom, greatness looks like serving. It doesn't look like ruling. It looks like serving the other. In your imaginations, you think of greatness as being secure, isolated, not needing anyone else, being self-sufficient. I am telling you, greatness looks like hating that life, working towards reconciliation and forgiveness. And now I want to tell you that what it means to be great in this kingdom is to invert your imagination about how the economy of the kingdom functions. So if you're paying attention, notice that the last verse of chapter 19 is this, verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's the same verse as verse 16. He's trying to say to you, and to us, we've got to invert our imaginations that some who are the first will be last, but the last will be first. Now, here's what happens. Are you looking at me? Stop getting coffee in the kitchen. Come back to the screen. I can see you. Because we so do not like this economy, and because it is so different than the way our imaginations are shaped, here's what I think we do with this text. We make it about one of two things. We make it about heaven. So it becomes this sweet then story about how it doesn't matter if you became a Christian at the age of five in children's church and served the Lord till you were 98. Or if you lived your own life and on your deathbed you accepted Christ, you get in. Woohoo! Pew, pew, pew. Awesome. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think there's something right about that, but we make the parable then about that. That in the new creation, in the coming kingdom, it doesn't matter if you've been there a long time or a little time, we all get to participate in God's new creation. Thanks be to God. That, that is true at some level, but I don't think that's what the parable is about. Or we say, well, this parable is really about 
how Matthew, when he's writing uh, his gospel, is dealing with a church that's trying to put together Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews are frustrated because they've been here a long time and have obeyed the law a long time and have done a lot of things to try to get their way in. And now these rascally Gentiles have shown up. They don't know anything. And they're getting treated as though they are equal with us when they just showed up. And so this is a story mainly to tell those Jewish religious types, let us in, treat us better, okay? And again, there may be some truth to that, but I think both of those minimize the level of imagination that Jesus is trying to mess with for those of us who are his disciples. Did you get that? So the last time I preached this text, which was years ago, when we lived in California, I know that I titled this sermon, The Parable, The Parable of the Home Depot Parking Lot. I forgot for a second. The Parable of the Home Depot Parking Lot. Now, I know this happens a little bit here, but you have to really go to Southern California to experience the Home Depot parking lot any morning of the year. So when you go to Home Depot in just below our house in Monrovia in Los Angeles, anywhere, when you go to the Home Depot lot or the Lowe's or any of those kind of places, early in the morning, here's what you see. You see contractors and various people ready to do home projects headed to Home Depot or Lowe's or one of those places. But in the corner of the parking lot, every day are about 25 or 30 immigrant or migrant workers, in that context largely Hispanic, who are waiting for somebody to drive by and say, I have a project today, jump in the truck. And if you'll come and work for me today, it may turn into a job tomorrow and the next day too. And so what happens is when that contractor is in the pickup truck and drives past that corner, you see all of them kind of rush towards the truck. It's, it's in some ways kind of intimidating. There's a desperation to pick me. How many do you need? We'll, you know, we'll go. And you see then by the end of the morning, about 9 or 10 o'clock, that, that group of 25 or 30 has now turned into a group of 15 or 18 because some have found work for the day. And so this parable is rooted in that kind of idea, that there is a vineyard owner, and it's time for harvest, and they go to the marketplace, to the parking lot of the Home Depot, and there are people there desperate for two things, desperate to use the gifts that they have for some good thing. In Genesis, you and I are created in the image of God to be reflections of who God is and in the story to be co-participants in God's creative activity. I've said this to you before. My friend Andy Crouch illustrates this so well. He just says, you know, when God creates, he makes wheat and he looks at it and says, that's good. But then humans in their imago dei, in their image of God, in our co-creativity, we take that wheat, we break it down, we mix a bunch of stuff with it, we throw it in the oven and then we go to Jimmy John's and we go, oh, that's really good. So Andy will say, wheat is good, but bread is very good. Andy's not Nazarene, so he can use this next illustration. He says, grapes are good. But then we stomp on them, leave them around for a while, and they become wine. And wine is very good. Or if you're Nazarene in the 19th century, Welch's makes grape juice, and it's very good, right? 
So we are co-participants. So these people in the marketplace are desperate because they have gifts to be used and no one is using them. And so they feel like life has hung them up with no ability to participate and for their life to have the significance it should have because their gifts are being accessed. But most importantly, there are people who, who have needs and they need to make it through the day. I would often think as I would see that group at the Home Depot parking lot, how interesting it would be to know their individual stories. To know where they had left, what, what, kind of, what kind of conflict, what kind of difficulty, what kind of brokenness had they left so that this desperation life was better than what they had? Like, what is the story that has driven them to this place? And further, to know the story of how are they making it and who are the people they're trying to care for in that desperate attempt for somebody to take them into the field or into the construction area. Are you with me? And so what happens in this parable is that Jesus says, listen, you are used to thinking about an economy of merit. This parable is about an economy of need. So that what the vineyard worker has are the eyes to go in the marketplace and say, I need some people, so I'll hire people early in the morning, but they have needs. But then at nine, and think about this, nine, noon, three, five o'clock, and goes in the marketplace and says, why are you still here? And they say out of their desperation, because nobody has hired us. And so the vineyard worker says, well, come on, come on, come Use your giftedness in my vineyard. Come, have your need met in this vineyard. So the master is shaped not just from an economy of need, but also from the other side of Brueggemann's formula, out of a liturgy of abundance. So we could go back to that for just a minute, as I've said to you probably a thousand times. In the Exodus story, it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of them, so they wind up in the wilderness, and they are hungry, and so God gives them one of my favorite Hebrew words, manna, which means in Hebrew. What is it? And so every day, God gives them a, what is it? But you remember the rules. They can only eat that daily bread today, and they cannot store it up like the hoarder Pharaoh does. Only on the Sabbath can they store enough for two days because God is trying to teach them. And by the way, anytime there's a 40, it means that God is changing us. I said to my class this week, if you're not a good student, then take 40 days and for 40 days do some good study habits and you'll hate it. About eight, day 18, you're going to want to quit. And about day 27, you've had enough. But if you'll stick with it through the 40, at the end of the 40, you may have some new habits. Those of us who struggle to exercise, if we would just do it for 40 days and we will try to quit five times. But if you can make it to 40, you may have some new habits out of it. It changes us. Are you there? And so what God is doing is he's forming them to be a people who no longer fear the stranger but can treat the stranger with hospitality, who no longer have to hoard because they are convinced there is enough for everybody. 
Now, not enough for everybody if we are all going to fight for merit, but enough for everybody if our primary concern is, is everybody being able to access the giftedness that God has given them, and is everybody going to have their daily needs met? There is plenty for that to happen. And so then he does the craziest thing. He pays them in reverse. And so he pays those who've only been an hour a full day's wage. Those who've been there for three hours, a full day's wage. Those who've been there for six hours, a full day's wage. Those who've been there for nine hours, a full day's wage. And then those who've been there all day since the sun rose in the morning. Think, cha-ching! This is a very good day. And they get a day's wage. You see, even when we are people who have been on that other side, who have experienced what it means to need somebody to invite us to come and use our giftedness, and even when we have experienced what it means to not know how to make it through the next day, and somebody has extended grace to us, it does not take very long for us to turn from the economy of grace and the economy of need right over to the economy of merit. So Jesus wants to say to them, listen, friend, and I love that that's what Jesus refers to them as. So reminiscent of the parable of the younger, of the prodigal son, which is actually the parable of the older brother. Friend, come on, son, don't, don't you understand? There's a whole different economy at work here. It's an economy that plays in, the, in generosity, it plays in the liturgy of abundance. It sees the need for that person to, to fulfill the image of God in them. It, it, it sees the need for them to make it through what they need each day. That's where it operates. Come on, don't give up. You've been there. You needed that. So now extend it. You have received grace. Now extend that grace to others. Come on, friend. Understand where you are. I had been at Pasadena a few years, and um, we were having some issues with sort of generational transition in the church. I know that surprises you. It doesn't usually happen many places, but we, it was happening there. Now, I, I've been preaching regularly for, a senior, I've been a senior pastor for 18 years now. In my first interview, when I was at Richardson, um, I, was, I came in really prepared and they asked me, well, you know, you've never preached regularly before. What, what will you do? And my kind of mentor in preaching had, had always had like an 18-month or two-year calendar all mapped out. And so I had sat down and I had planned out if Richardson were to call us and we were to come about this date, I, I planned out 18 months of preaching. And I said, oh, I'm so glad you asked me that question. I said, here's where we would go first and we would do this and then we're going to go do this and then we're going to, oh, it's, you know, I was trying to get them excited. And this one guy on the board says, so you never let the Spirit guide you, which is a funny statement. It assumes that the Spirit can only work at the last minute, right? Um, and I would say to them now, I'm so fascinated at how so often what was planned in advance ends up being the exact right thing for the moment that it shows up. 
The spirit doesn't always fly by the seat of its pants. Um, if it had pants. But, um, by the seat of its Shekinah or whatever. Um, I'll be here all week. Uh, so, um, but one time in the 18 years, I got up on Sunday morning and <laughs> decided to not preach what I was ready to preach and I worked on all week. So the, the reading at Pasadena, the reading for the week um, in my devotions had been 1 Samuel. And I was struck by how in the beginning of the story, when, when Samuel ends up in the tabernacle and sleeping next to the ark, and you remember the story, here's God's voice, and Eli says, tell him, speak God, or speak Lord for your servant is listening. What Eli said, or what Samuel says is really quite disruptive to Eli and to the whole system. And so I was struck by, here's this young kid who we've welcomed into our fellowship who turns out to be a pain in the neck. It just turns the whole thing on its head, right? Like, it just flips the whole tabernacle priestly system right over. But then it's like three chapters later. The people of God come to Samuel and say this, you're old, and we'd like, we'd like you to move aside so that there, we can put a king over us. Now, you're not very excited about this, but this is what struck me. Oh, my word. It took three chapters for Samuel to go from rebel to the old guy. And, and here we were in the midst of these generational kind of issues, and I thought, oh, I'm, pre- I'm waking up. This is on my heart. So I preached this sermon about how, isn't it good that these generational issues are not new to us? And I preached, heaven and earth kissed. I mean, I was sweating and crying and all, talking about how God has called us. And I said, here's, here's what some of you could do for me. Some of you have served in this church for a long, long time, and you've had these positions of teaching and service and all these things. Here's what I'd love for you to do. See a young person in this church, folks that have come that are new, grab them, mentor them into the role, make space for them in the place of service, and mentor them as the next generation to move forward, right? Oh, it was such a good sermon. That guy was right. I should let the Spirit guide me more often. Like, it was great. It was a disaster. So the next Sunday, it's like four or five volunteer positions where the person just didn't show up. And we call them and say, hey, um, where were you? And they said, well, you told us last week you wanted us to quit. I said, no, I did not. I told you to find somebody and mentor them into your role. They said, oh, we thought... You're just tired of us, and it's time for somebody new to take it, right? And we were actually a little upset about it, and we were in the middle of an email. But now that you say something, right? I am convinced um, that God is moving in our midst and is giving us a mission in this valley and beyond. Um, I, I had a great opportunity on Monday uh, to go to breakfast with uh, Jana Wolf's brother, Brent Deacons. He's the um, executive pastor at Eagle, but he's in the midst of transitioning to helping our district uh, work on uh, church growth and planting and congregational renovation. And, and he and I went to the griddle, and 
and we met for breakfast, and we had so much fun, and we got so excited, and it was just one of those breakfasts where both our tails were wagging, and we were just having so much fun dreaming and thinking about what God is doing, sharing with them some of the things that I think God is doing, even in the midst of this pandemic, doors that God is opening for us that I think are going to be amazing for us, and we're just, and it was one of those breakfasts where finally, about the time they were bringing us the lunch menus, we thought, well, we should better go. We better go, and we'll pick this up later. But I am just so excited. I believe God is doing something in our midst, and I don't want you to quit the role that you are in, but I do want us to have a kind of eye that sees those whose gifts are not being accessed and used, and those who are looking for a way to find their life, have meaning and purpose and service to God, and make space for them. And for us to live with this kind of sense that there is, there's enough goodness for all, there's enough blessing for all, there is enough work for all, there is enough prosperity in God's new creation for us all to be able to lean in and make space and invite those in. Are you with me? You see, if I could go back to my opening story, I thought 41 years ago what I learned was that life isn't fair <laughs> and, if you, and if you whine enough, you'll eventually get what you want. What I learned, and especially what I've learned over the last 27 years, is the economy of family is different. Some of you know the word economy comes from a Greek word, oikonomia, which means literally household. And do you know what I've learned as a parent and as a spouse the economy of family is weird. You try to make it even, right? Like, I wish I had a nickel for every time we'd had the, so how much have we spent on that kid for Christmas? So I know that kid doesn't need anything, but we better buy something unuseful but equal in value to what we just spent on this kid, right? Like, we have that conversation all the time. Oh, it's their birth. Oh, what did we get Sophie for her birthday? Oh, well, we better get, yeah. You're constantly trying to make it equal. But those of you who know family know you can kind of play that game at birthdays and Christmas, but the reality is the economy of family functions out of need. That there are times when, when one of the children need a unique amount of attention and it's not that you have stopped loving and being concerned for the others. It's that in this moment, it's, as a family, it's, it's our turn to care for this one. And sometimes it needs to be reversed. Sometimes it's, I know you kids think you get all the attention, but I'm having a real crisis right now. And the family system needs to love mom right now, or the family system needs to give dad some space and grace right now. That the economy of family is an economy of need, it is an economy of grace, it is an economy that learns that we all, in order to be family, need to participate with the giftedness that God has given to us, and we need to be brought in. And so, brothers and sisters, if... If God is going to accomplish what I think God wants to accomplish through us, it's going to take us having the imagination of a family to say, especially if we extend beyond these walls into other places, it's going to take us not having a, 
an economy that says, but we were here first, right? Why are we paying so much attention to them? Why are they getting this and we didn't get it? Who are all these new people and what job do I have now? For the economy of family is an economy that sees and makes space. And even at the last minute, it says, come, participate, share. The story, I'm right in front of this one, is familiar probably to most of you. A rich young man comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what, what, I love all this new creation, kingdom of God talk. I want in. How do I get in? How do I have this eternal life that you speak of? And Jesus says, well, live Torah. Do you follow the law, what God has said you should do? Honor your father and mother, do all these things, right? He says, oh, yeah, I've done that for a long time. I mean, look, I wouldn't have everything I had if I hadn't done those things. Look how Yahweh has blessed. I have lived into the economy of merit. Would have never gotten to this position had I not been so faithful to God. And Jesus says, oh, I see. Yeah, I get it. You lack one thing. Put aside your economy of merit. Sell everything you think that you have earned. And come and follow me into the vineyard as a late arriving worker who has not earned a place but has received a place of grace. And you will have the new creation. You know what happens. He says, oh, what a relief that would be to not have to feel like I have to keep earning my way into this thing. Oh, you have spoken such truth to me. I, I have needed somebody to say, let go, release, get rid of the myth of scarcity. Oh, you have brought such joy to my life. No. He went away sad. Unable to switch imagination. Interestingly, the disciples can't believe it. Because Jesus says, did you see how hard that is? We who have lived the economy of merit and know the myth of scarcity and it's hard to imagine something different. It's so hard. It's like trying to cram a camel through the eye of a needle. Good luck with that. In fact, it's impossible. The disciples say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says the most gracious thing, you can't do this on your own. But with God's spirit, all things are possible. I want to say again, I, I believe God has some great things for us. Our primary stumbling block will be 
an economy of merit and a people who are, like me, convinced of the myth of scarcity. For it's impossible for us to break out of that. But the good news is, with God, all things are possible. And perhaps we can learn to work in the field all day and be delighted in the generosity of God that keeps finding more people to join and to get the life they need and to get the new creation that they desire. God, help us today. Um, we're really not a bad people, right? Um, we're just really a people shaped um, by typical economic vision, merit. Um, as much as we sing about amazing grace, uh, we, we still are able to turn that quickly into forms of work and merit and achievement. Um, so give to us today a different vision, a, a vision of need. Um, I pray, God, for us as a church that you would give us vision not just on Sunday, but as we go into the community, as we participate across the street, we, we see young people, we see others who, who are desperate for a family to say, you have gifts, gifts that the body of Christ needs, need, gifts that the, the kingdom of God needs, come, um, come discover what it means to give one's gifts for the sake of the Lord. Um, help us to live an imagination of, of a liturgy of abundance where truly there is enough for everyone. There's space for everyone to serve and to love and to be included. But teach us how to do that. It, I pray that whatever you have for us in this day, in this time, as this church, and in this community and beyond, I pray, God, that you would make it a collective vision for us, but that you would also help us to not allow our, our merit-based imagination <laughs> to get in the way of your grace. And so teach us that. The last thing we want to do is hear the call and then walk away sad because we just simply... We can't do it. So empower us by your spirit to be what you've called us to be. Make us a people uh, who give to others the life and the giftedness and the place that they need. Teach us the economy of family today. For we pray this in the one who is the head of the church and the head of this family. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen.